Thank you, Brother Cassidy. And let's turn in our Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, as I mentioned to you before, our little mealtime, what we just shared together, is what the Apostle Paul is talking about there in the middle of 1 Corinthians 11, where he talks about the love feast or the love meal that they practiced in the early church there in Corinth, preceding the Lord's Supper. And you can see, you can get a feel for how special that is as we were able to interact with one another there at the table, and it becomes very much a family environment, doesn't it? And we get to know each other, we talk about each other's trials and difficulties, and encourage one another in the things of the Lord. Well, we've seen already here in 1 Corinthians, and I think you began to pick up, that 1 Corinthians isn't just a letter, you know, I sometimes hear uh, when we talk about church truth, ecclesiology, you know, or church distinctives that, you know, well, you go to 1 Corinthians and we leap over to chapter 11 and we start like, like the first 10 chapters weren't even there. But, but, but the whole letter ties together. There's a unity to it. And the apostle, he starts off with the first few, few issues that he's dealing with are all issues that uh, were brought to his attention by those of Chloe's household. And... Uh, if you can clear that screen when you get a chance, because that's catching a lot of eyes. I want the eyes on their Bibles. Uh, and and then he, at the beginning of chapter 7, he begins to talk about things that were brought to his attention in a letter that was written to him. So the, the elders apparently wrote a letter to him, and, and they had certain issues that they were dealing with, singleness and marriage in chapter 7, and, and meat offered idols in chapter 8, 9, and 10, and so forth. But the Apostle Paul isn't just giving a list. Well, here's what the church, when the church meets, this is what ought to characterize the church. He's melding it into while he's describing who the church really is. Right? And we've been able to see that, that our identity now as born again Christians is very intimately connected to our relationship to the Lord Jesus and to one another. And we've seen already there in chapter 1 and verse 9 that we've been called by God into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. A partnership, a sharing together in common so that our outlook on our life, on this world, and on the future, the age to come is all connected with who we are in Christ and what He wants us to be doing. Right? And, and just that thought in itself, just if we only had chapter 1, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, the fellowship of His Son. In other words, it's a partnership with deity. Do you realize that? I, I don't think we could even fairly say that Adam and Eve had that. You know, they, they were to have dominion over the creation. But we don't read about them having a partnership like this with the Son of God. So we've seen then that we that one of the characteristics of us who are believers is that we've been set apart for God, right? That the whole issue of being sanctified by the Lord. And then we saw that the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord Jesus, to those who are the called, chapter one, verse twenty four both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ Himself. He's the power of God and the wisdom of God. And, and that order is purposeful, isn't it? 
Because we wouldn't understand the wisdom of God without the power of God first. The power of God is reflected in being born again, being brought into life in, in Christ Jesus. And we, once we were born again, then we began to appreciate the wisdom of God, didn't we? We began to read in the Scriptures. We began to study the Scriptures. We began to see who we were and what God had in this big marvelous plan that He's working out. And that you and I had a place in that plan. And that God's idea of that plan and our place in it, He thought of it before the world was made. Not just before we were made, before the world was made. And so there's this overarching plan that God has and He wants us to be participants in it. But He has a certain order in how that's done, right? He has this, this entity, this group of this family that He calls His church. This is one local representative of that. Corinth was another local representative of that. So we've been set apart for God and our sufficiency as Christians is, is all taken care of in one man, one person, Jesus Christ. Right? So we, we're not looking for someone else to be our leader. You say, well, would any Christian do that? Yes, that's the problem that they're having with the Corinthians. They're looking to men to be their leaders. And uh, alas, don't... You don't have to look very far into Christendom and Christianity to see that that's still a problem. It's hard for us to live by faith. We want to live by sight, don't we? We want to have a leader we can see. Our leader is in heaven. We can't see him. We're not supposed to see him now. We're supposed to be living by faith now. That's part of his order. That's part of his purpose for us now. And we're content with that once we recognize this is the what He has for us. In the Old Testament time frame, they had faith, plus they had partial sight. They had the temple. They had the Shekinah glory. They had the altar. They had the smell of the incense. All these things. So they had these things to bolster their faith. In the church age, it's by faith. In the age to come, it will all be by sight, won't it? So God has a different order and plan for each of these eras as he's worked it out. We saw then last night in chapter 2 the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that Spirit enabled growth is what we understand that we are participants in. In other words, our spiritual growth as children of God is dependent upon the Holy Spirit using the Word of God instructing us. And that's why we, we talked about it, why we pray every time we come to the Word of God because we recognize that we need spiritual enlightenment. And as he says, spiritual discernment. That great statement he makes in chapter 2, verse 9, but as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared already. For those that love Him. And that love, it's agapao, it's the verb form of agape love. And we know that agape love is not just a love that is talk, it's talk plus walk. It's, it's verbal plus action, right? It's, a, it's an active verb. And, and so those that love Him demonstrate that in their lives, not just by their words. It includes our words. 
but by our actions too, right? And we can make an assessment as we look at one another. We look at people that profess to be Christian. We can make an assessment by watching how they live. The Bible tells us to do that. That's how we discern who are false teachers and who are true teachers and so forth, right? The things which God has prepared, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. See? And then we closed out last night with, well, we have the end of chapter 2, we have the mind of Christ. Malcolm and I were talking about that this afternoon. You know how bold a statement that is? Now, that doesn't mean that we have, we're not omniscient. Christ's mind is omniscient, right? But being born again and having the Holy Spirit given to us, we are beginning to think like the Lord Jesus, right? And in that sense, we have the mind of Christ and we're growing in His outlook on things. And we need to have the Word of God in a regular diet in order to continue to grow, as he tells about in the first part of chapter 3. He says, I couldn't give you a steady diet of meat. I had to go back to the milk because you're not growing. You're carnal. You're acting like mere men. You're acting like lost people, he says. But you're not lost. He's already said in chapter 1, I know you're saved. You're sanctified in the Lord. Why are you acting like lost people? Because you're not appreciating who you are. You're not appreciating, he says to these Corinthians, what God has done in you and what He wants to continue to do in you. He'll say so much in chapter 6. You talk about the mind of Christ. He says, don't you know that, that you are going to be judging angels? He says in verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? He says, do you realize that, that decisions you need to make as groups of Christians and amongst the eldership and the areas of discipline and the, uh, lots of other areas in the Christian family and in the Christian household, he says, they're the smallest matters compared to what you're going to be doing. We're going to be reigning on this earth with the King, the Lord Jesus. He says, so start getting ready. Start getting ready. And that brings us into chapter 3, verse 5, where we pick up tonight. And it begins a section that goes all the way through chapter 4 and verse 5. And I'm titling this, Stewards of the Mysteries of God. See, not only have we been brought into a partnership, a fellowship with the Lord, we've also been given a stewardship. Now, we all understand what stewardship means, right? It means when someone gives something to us that we're responsible for, what we're going to have to be give an answer for, right? And, and it's, a, it's a trusteeship. It's an entrustment, right? There's a level of trust that, that we would give, that someone would give to us a stewardship, right? Something to steward, something to manage for them in their place, so to speak. And we are stewards, you and I, of the mysteries of God. It's a pretty big privilege, isn't it? So Paul begins here in verse 5 of chapter 3, coming back to himself and Apollos, 
as examples. Remember back in chapter 1 when they were talking about different ones who are followers. I'm followers of Paul. I'm followers of Peter. I'm followers of Apollos, you know. And they were, they were following men instead of the Lord. And so Paul is going to use himself and Apollos as examples for this illustration because when he gets down to chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. All right, I'm using Apollos and I as an example to you, to teach you, to instruct you on stewardship. So he says in verse 5 of chapter 3, Who then is Paul? Who then is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. Now the Bible in the Greek New Testament has about four or five different Greek words for servant or minister. In one of the words, diakonos, we get our word deacon from it, right? That's the word he's using here. He says, Apollos and Paul are just the instrument. They're just the ministers through whom you believed. Don't worship us. Worship the one who worked through us, which is God Himself, right? And that leads him to explain an important principle about ministry, which is true not just of Paul and Apollos in the first century Corinthians, but also true of all of us. And he's going to use two metaphors. Well, you know what a metaphor is, right? It's an illustration from life, usually, to help teach a lesson. And it usually has something very visual. The first metaphor is a field that's being planted with something, some sort of a crop that grows. And the second metaphor is a building. So we can all relate to, well, not too many of us do farming, I guess, in the city like this. We can relate to buildings for sure. But some of us have seen what it is when out on the west side, maybe, where crops grow and how in that whole issue of farming. So the first one is farming. He says in verse 6, I planted... See, Paul was a church planter. That means a church planter goes into... He's a pioneer missionary. He goes into a community and an area for the first time. Paul said that was his calling. That's the way he always did. He never went where someone else had always... He felt called of the Lord to do this. We have pioneer missionaries today. New tribes missions and mission groups like that. They go to areas that what we call unreached people groups. Right? If you can believe it, they are still unreached people groups on this planet. And some, someone in this room may be called to that sometime. And it's a great stewardship, privilege. He says, I planted, then Apollos comes along after me and he waters. All right? So somebody plants the seed, covers it up with dirt, and all you see is dirt, right? And then somebody else comes along and waters it, and lo and behold, something springs up through the earth and begins to bear fruit. Apollos comes along after waters, but who's responsible for the increase? God is, see. You see how the illustration helps communicate what he said in verse 5? We're just ministers through whom you believed? Now, the instrument's important. God uses us as instruments. But we don't worship the instrument. We worship the one guiding and working through the instrument, right? So then, neither he who plants is anything. 
nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the increase. You see how that defuses, takes away that whole problem they had with worshiping men, which was causing divisions in the assembly? I'm a follower of this one. I'm a follower of this one. Oh, I'm a follower of this one. And, and all that is carnality. It's, it's baby Christianity, if we can use that terminology. It's staying a little infant baby Christian to worship men and to want to drop names of men and say, oh yeah, but I follow this man. And, and beloved, we all struggle with it because all of us tend to want to be very loyal to the person who led us to Christ, right? I mean, the person that I heard on the radio that when I trusted in Christ, it, it, it was almost impossible for me not to want to just, you know, put a picture of them on the, on the pedestal and buy all their books. I didn't do that by the grace of God. But I thought of it. And, and just to think, you know, well, only, only anything they say is right. And anybody that says anything against them, you know, I'm ready to... Well, that's, that's what baby Christians do. And if somebody's newly born again in the, in the fellowship, which I hope we have newly born again people from time to time come in, right? Because of the ministry here. Then we, we don't pounce on them when they're like that. We, we expect that from them. We know that we were like that. But after five or ten years, if they're still like that, well, then, then there's a disconnect in discipleship somewhere. We've dropped the ball in discipling them, right? Because they shouldn't be like, they should have grown out of that. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, yeah, Paulos and I, you know, yeah, we, we, we were valuable in the ministry there to some extent, but we were just instruments. God's the one you need to be worshiping and thanking and praising, right? Which, of course, unites us all too, because it takes the eyes off of men and envy and strife and competition which he talked about in the beginning of chapter 3, takes all that away, right? I'm not going to compete with God. None of us is going to worry about trying to do that. We're going to worship Him and surrender and submit to Him. But men, now that's a different thing. We'll want to compete with them sometimes. Some of us more so than others. And so Paul says, Now he who plants... And he who waters are one. They have the same goal. They have the same purpose. They have the same outlook. Right? There's unity there. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So Paul says, I'm going to receive a reward for the labor I did. Apollos is going to receive reward for the labor he did. I'm not going to get reward for Apollos' work, and he's not going to get reward for my work. Each one. And yet we're one, and yet we're two. We're diverse, right? There's unity and diversity in the body of Christ and in how the various ones of us with various spiritual gifts ministers for the common good of all. The common goal, right? So here in verses 5 through 9, we see, I've titled it God's Fellow Workers because the next verse, verse 9, 
to me, again, is one of those staggering statements here that is, is just unbelievable. For we are God's sunergos, fellow workers. We are God's fellow workers? You see what, what height He's brought us to in terms of privilege? God says, I want you to work together with me in this. Now how many of us, me included, we get so busy with the world and we get so busy with our life goals and our occupations and making it through the week or whatever and we forget what He's called us to. This is enormous <laughs> to be a fellow worker with God. Now, we're also servants of God, and that's a biblical term that's used, and he'll use another term there beginning in chapter 4, but here he's emphasizing there's a partnership like he did in chapter 1, verse 9, right? God's wanting us to understand. He says, look, I want you to partner with me in this. Now, we talked about it last night. What is the partnership? What's, what, is, what is it concerning? Well, it's concerning building His church, right? Matthew 16, 18. I will build My church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail. I will prevail. And then He says in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the command is, as you go, <coughs> be making disciples of how many? Come on, you know that one. <laughs> All men, thank you. <laughs> Be making disciples of all men. Teaching. Baptizing. I got the order wrong. Baptizing, teaching. But so going, baptizing, teaching are the three participles that modify the verb. The verb is be making disciples. It's in the present continuous tense. That's the command from the King of the universe, the Lord Jesus. He says, be about making disciples of all nations. That's your task. That's your commission. That's your stewardship. And then Paul reinforces it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul tells Timothy, the things you've heard from me, pass these things on to faithful men who will be able to train others also. So that's the continuity. Four generations in that verse, right? Paul, Timothy, the faithful men, and the others also. And that's how it has passed on since. Making disciples. That's our primary charge from the Lord. Now, each one of us has a part in that. You realize if certain ones hadn't come in here and set up the tables and the chairs, we wouldn't have been able to have a meal tonight because people would come with a meal, but there'd be no place to set it down, and then everybody would be stumbling against each other, and maybe pots would be dropped because they're hot and all of this, right? And those kind of people that do that kind of work sometimes are forgotten. And then maybe somebody was cleaning the restroom so you'd have a clean restroom to go to while you're here. And then other people are preparing the sound thing and other people. All this different part, they're all part of the ministry that makes it happen. We're of one body in Christ and each individual has a part in it. And if you are not being plugged into the ministry partnership, then we're failing you. Amen? Because that's what we're about. As far as me personally, Ephesians 4.11 says, 
that the Lord set apart certain individuals that were pastors, teachers, given to the church universal. Not just one local church, given to the entire body of Christ. And what's their primary mission? Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And if, when I come here and share the Word of God and try to encourage you and edify and build you up and challenge you maybe some too, if I'm not equipping you for the work of the ministry, I'm not doing my work. I'm failing somewhere. And each one of us has our own part in that, see? So that's the part of the field. The field is an interesting analogy. I think it has to do is a better picture of evangelism, right? Because you're sowing a seed. You're starting something there that wasn't there before. But then he moves into the metaphor of the building. Now the building, what he has in mind is God's temple. But he's not talking about the Solomonic temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about the temple which is God's church, which is one of seven different temples we read about in the Bible. And the temple tells us what? What was this, the, the primary purpose of the temple in the Old Testament? A place for people to come and worship God, to be in fellowship with God. And it was a permanent testimony to the existence of God. Right? Each stone, each part of that building, it, it was immovable. It was permanent. That was the idea. And that's the picture he uses. Peter uses it in 1 Peter 2. Paul will use it also in Ephesians chapter 2. It's a common metaphor. And what he says here, according to the grace of God which was given to me, verse 10, and this, there, now he's going to move into the issue of how we build. What we build was in verses 5 through 9. How we build according to the grace of God which was given to me. Paul says, it wasn't something I cooked up on my own. I didn't think of this. It was the grace of God that was given to me. It was an assignment given to me from God, see. <clears throat> As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. You're going to plant a new work. You're going to be laying the foundation. And then Apollos comes in and builds on it. And we come in now and we build on some, the foundation for this testimony was laid a long time ago, maybe two or three generations ago by individuals that have long since gone home to be with the Lord. So those of us that work in this testimony now are building on other people's labors, aren't we? And that's how it works. He says, they've laid, he laid the foundation, another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. See? Take heed, be careful how we build on it. Because there is no other foundation that any man can lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation that we're laying isn't a new foundation. We're building on the foundation that the apostles laid themselves, which is Jesus Christ. There's no other Savior. 
There's no other access to God but Him. There's no other mediator between God and man. All of those ideas, right? And we've built on it many years since, since the time of the Apostle. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work. Notice, each one. Each person's work will declare it. I'm sorry, will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. What's he saying? The judgment seat of Christ. When the Lord Jesus calls us up to meet Him in the air. It's going to be a sobering thing to meet face to face with the living Lord Jesus. And we're going to give account for the things we've done in our bodies as Christians. Second Corinthians 5 tells us both good and bad. We're going to give account for them. He doesn't say we're going to be judged for them. We're going to give account. That is, when you give account for something, it's a reckoning, right? In other words, I gave this to you to do with like the parable of the, uh, the talents, right? And, and then he gives, it, uh, gives time to do something with them. And then he brings them back in the room and says, okay, what did you do with what I gave you? Well, I made ten more. I made five more. And Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, make sure you're not ashamed. Which implies that it's possible to be ashamed at the Lord's appearing. Not lost, but ashamed. And there's no reason for any of us to be ashamed at His appearing. He's told us what to do to stay in fellowship with Him, right? We have all we need to stay in fellowship with Him. We have a conscience that's being activated and informed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God increasingly becoming more and more uh, an asset to us to remind us, to show us things when we're, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive them. Is it possible for us, any one of us in this room, to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and not have anything that we're ashamed of? Is that possible? I would say it is. I would say it is. I would say that if we remain in fellowship with Him and stay submitted to Him and loyalty to Him, and do the work that He's given us to do, then there isn't any reason that we should be ashamed at His appearing. But He says, some will build with gold, silver, and precious stones, which is a, a direct link to some of the instruments used in the old temple, the Solomonic temple, right? And some wood, hay, and straw. Now, what happens to wood, hay, and straw when it's exposed to fire? There's nothing left, right? Just ashes. What happens to gold, silver, and precious stone when they're exposed to the same fire? They're purified and made even more valuable, right? 
So it's a sobering statement that Paul is giving here to these Corinthians to remind them, look, you don't want to be flippant or slipshod about your attitude to the Christian life. He's already identified their problem of carnality, right? Earlier in chapter 3. He said you should be growing and you're not. And, and if you continue on the track you're on, you're going to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ because you're not going to have anything to show for a life lived for Him. And if you think it's important to have something to show at a sports banquet where you might get an award or a trophy or something from this world, a Stephanos, as he calls it in chapter 9, a wreath, a crown that they give in the Olympics that's perishable. What about the imperishable crown that Christ Jesus holds forth for us, see? And so Paul reminds them, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So the issue isn't salvation. He makes it clear, doesn't he? You'll be saved, he says. That's clear. The issue isn't salvation. The issue is rewards. But it is possible that we would suffer loss. And God says, I don't want any of you to suffer loss. If you stay in tune with me and work with me in this, you won't have to. But if you go on your own way, follow men, Live a carnal life and waste your time here on earth. You're going to suffer loss. Now, that's not the highest motive for us to serve the Lord, is it? But it is a good motive to serve the Lord and to maybe check some things in our life. What's the highest motive to serve Him? Because of our love for Him. <laughs> because He loved us when we were wretched. <laughs> He loved us when we were useless and helpless. Couldn't do anything for Him. All we could do was bad. Animosity. We were at enmity with God, according to Romans 8, 5 through 7. But He saved us, washed us, regenerated us, put us into a family, the family of God, gave us a spiritual gift, give us, gives us opportunities to serve Him. And He says... Make use of your time here on earth and I'm going to reward you. Beloved, eternal life is enough of reward just by itself, isn't it? I'm just happy to have that. I'm happy I'm not going to have to die for my sins because somebody else did it for me. I mean, the joy that brought me November 11th, 1982, coming up on 30 years in a few weeks, it, it still gives me. I remember verbatim still the prayer I made to the Lord that night sitting on Indian style on my floor in my living room with the lights off, listening to the radio and the gospel being proclaimed. Yeah, that's enough. But our God is such a generous, gracious giver. He says, I want to give you more than that. I want to give you rewards. I mean, that is amazing to me. What does it tell us about our Lord? See, But that leads him then into a third section here, a warning section. And of course, these Corinthians needed to be warned, and we 21st century Corinthians need to be warned too. 
we were talking this afternoon, Miami would fit for Corinth very closely. Miami's a port city. Corinth was a port city. People came in from all over the world to Corinth on their way from the, the, the Chinese Silk Road to the east, headed west to Rome and to Spain. They came all through there, and the same is true with Miami. And you have all kinds of cultures and all kinds of debauchery and all kinds of religions. So then in verses 16 to 23, the danger of self-deception. Do, do you not know, verse 16, that you are the temple of God? He's talked about the building. Now he's identifying the building he's talking about. You are, Corinthians. The you here is plural, so he's talking about them as a group. In chapter 6, he'll talk about them individually. Their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit too. But collectively, you are the temple of God. What you do collectively reflects on the character and reputation of God, see? You're as a lighthouse, as a temple, or to draw all people to Himself. And when we don't do that, we're failing God, right? We're failing our purpose. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you corporately? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. That's, that's sobering, isn't it? When you get to chapter 11, you find out, he says, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have died because this was going on. They were destroying, they were not taking seriously and solemnly their position as children of God collectively in the temple of God. See? God is very gracious, but there does come a time, right? Well, he will intervene. He says, For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, who thinks they can use the wisdom of this age to build the temple of God, let him become a fool that he may become wise. <laughs> Let him humble himself with the message of the cross, chapter 1, which the world calls foolishness. That's what he means. That he may become wise. Therefore, let no one boast in men, verse 21, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or, this, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Let me just say real quickly, then in chapter 4, 1 through 5, he gives the second metaphor or example of, of describing he and Apollos. He says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You know what that word servants there is? It's a word I think it's only used here in the New Testament. Under rowers is what that word would the direct translation would mean. You know, in a galley ship where they had the oar, they had sails in it too, but sometimes the winds would get very still in the Mediterranean, and so they had these openings in the side with these big oars, and they had men sitting on these benches all and they just run the oars like that to move the ship along, a galley ship. And they had one captain who gave the orders. Row, stop, 
This side only. This to make a turn. This side, the other. So he's saying, this big ship, the purpose of God, the church, if you will, he says, we're just rowers. And there's one captain. We get all our orders from one captain, the Lord Jesus. See, What a picture. And, and it humbles anybody that wants to exalt themselves, right? Paul says, I mean, Paul was in a position if anybody could exalt themselves, he could. He says, I'm just an under rower. I'm just a galley hand like the rest of you. We're just rowing along, but we're all trying to move this ship in the, in the direction that God wants it to go. Together. Corporately. Handling the mysteries of God as stewards. Moreover, it, it is required in stewards that they be found faithful. And that, God, that is what God is still looking for today, isn't it? What is it as he says to those who give account to him in the parable of the pounds or the parable of the talents? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in little things. Now let me give you big things. And the proportion of the reward and what we'll be doing in the age to come is directly proportionate to the level of faithfulness we show to Him now. That's only logical, right? If we're, not, if we're marginally faithful, if we're going to live mostly for ourselves and a little bit for God, well, He can't trust us with much here. He's not going to trust us with much there. But someone that's sold out for the Lord here, on the motive of biblical love, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, Faithful to the Lord, they're going to get a big reward on the other side. The other side of death. What a picture, huh? It's not the picture of life we get out there in the world, is it? But we have the mind of Christ now. Our view of the world is different now. We view it, if we can, through the prism of His Word. Not through the prism of philosophy. Not through the prism of secular humanism. But through the prism of the Word of God and the truth of God. And beloved, you're doing that. You're showing that faithfulness. The camaraderie you share together like there in the dining room and when you're in this meeting is, is tremendous. And the devil would love to Shake that up. Don't be deceived. Be alert. Be ready. Be armed with the armor of God. Love one another. Stay faithful. Stay close to the Word. Walk in the Spirit. And we will hear those words in the end. Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Father, we thank You for this time tonight. We thank You, O Lord, for the privilege that You've given to us to serve together with You, fellow workers with God. And there's nothing like it. You tell us in Your Word, Delight Thyself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And I think most of us can say that. I certainly can say that tonight. 
The desires of my heart have been given to me beyond my wildest dreams. And I think most of us can say that. And Lord, we want, to keep, want you to keep working through us as instruments of blessing to others in this community and wherever else you lead us. And may you receive the honor and the glory. Be with us as we travel home tonight. We thank you for your many blessings this week. We ask your blessing in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.